0: Chapter 2 The Hunter The Hunter Once again, all sorts of nonsense started filling Artyom's head. The dark ones. He'd come across those non-humans only once during his watch and he'd been scared silly. But how could it he not have been? So, you're sitting there on watch. You're warming yourself by the fire. And suddenly you hear it. From the tunnel. From somewhere in the depths, a regular dull knocking rings out. First, in the distance, quietly, and then ever closer and ever louder. And suddenly, your ears are struck by a horrible graveyard howl, and it's coming closer, and then complete mayhem. Everyone jumps up. They heap the sandbags and crates on which they've been sitting into a barrier quickly so that there'd be be something to hide behind, and the most senior among them shouts with all his might at the top of his lungs alert. Reserves rush in from the station to give support. All the 300th meter where the main blow will have been absorbed. They pull the cover from the machine gun and people throw themselves to the ground behind the sandbags, directing their guns at the mouth of the tunnel, taking aim. Finally, having waited for the dark ones to draw closer, they turn on the spotlight and strange, del- delirious silhouettes become vi- visible in its beams. They're naked, covered in black. Glossy skin, with huge eyes and mouths like, with, like and mouths like dashes. They're striding rhythmic, rhythm, rhythm, rhythmically. Uh, uh, no, they're striding rhythmically ahead towards the fortifications, towards death, with reckless abandon, without wavering. Closer and closer. There are three, five, eight beasts and then the first among them suddenly throws back its head and emits a howl like a requiem. You feel a shiver among your skin. You resist the urge to jump up and run, to toss your gun aside, to abandon your comrades, to throw everything to the devil and run. The spotlight is aimed straight into the muzzles of those nightmarish creatures to strike their pupils when its bright light with its bright light, but it's obvious that they're not even squinting. They're not throwing up their hands, but they are looking into the spotlight with eyes wide open and continuing to move steadily on, onward, onward. Do they even have pupils? And now, finally, the guys run up from the 300th meter with more machine guns. They lie down alongside comrades, fly overhead, they, they, they lie down alongside, Com- commands fly overhead, everything's ready, the long awaited fire, thunders. At once, several guns begin to rattle and the big machine gun rumbles. But the Dark Ones don't stop, they don't crouch, they stride ahead, fully erect, without slowing their pace, just as steadily and calmly as before. In the light of the spotlight, you can see how the bullets tear at their glossy bodies, how they're being pushed backwards, how they fall, but they get right back up again, rise to their full height, and march on, and again, now because its throat has already been pierced a sinister howl rings out several minutes more will pass as the still tempest finally breaks its inhuman unthinking obstinacy and then when all of these ghouls have tumbled breathless and motionless the guys will finish them off with shots to the head from five meters, just to be sure. And even when everything's over, when the corpses have been tossed into the shaft, that same sinister image will continue to hover before your eyes for a long time to come. Bullets plunge into those black bodies, the spotlight scalding those wide open eyes that they kept on marching as steadily as ever onwards. Artyom convulses at the thought. Yes, of course. It'd be better not to chat about them, he thought, just in case. Hey, Andrich, get ready. We're on our way, they shouted from the south, from the darkness. Your shift's over. The men at the fire began to move about, throwing off their stupor, rising to their feet, stretching, putting on their backpacks and weapons, and Andre picked up the little puppy. Poitre Andrevich and Artyom were returning to the station, while Andre and his men were returning to the 300th meter since their shift there hadn't quite ended. The replacements walked up and exchanged handshakes ascertained whether or not anything strange or peculiar had happened. Wished each other the relaxation they deserved and sat down a bit and sat down a bit closer to the campfire, continuing a conversation they'd begun earlier. When everyone was already headed south along the tunnel towards the station, Poitre Androvich began speaking heatedly with Andre about something, apparently returning to one of their eternal disputes, and the husky guy with the shaved head who had questioned them concerning the dark one's eating ha- dark ones' eating habits fell away from, from them, drawing even with ardium and no drawing even with ardium and beginning to walk in step with him. So then, you know Sukhoi? He asked, Artyom in a low, muffled voice without looking him in the eye. Uncle Sasha? Well, yes, he's my stepfather. I live with him, answered Artyom honestly. You don't say, your stepfather. I've never heard of such, muttered the man. And what's your name? R.D.M. decided to ask having responded that if someone questioned you about your own relative then that gives you the right to ask a question in return. My name asked the man surprisingly why do you need to know? Well I tell Uncle Sasha so coy that you were asking about him. Tell him that Hunter was asking. Hunter tell him I said hello. Hunter? That's an odd name. What is it? Your last name? Your nickname? Artyom asked? Last name. Hmm. Hunter smirked. What of it? It's totally... No, son. It's not a last name. It's... How should I put it? A profession. And what's your name? Artyom. Fine then. Nice to meet you. I'm sure we'll be seeing each other again, and fairly soon. And that, at that, cheers, giving Artyom a wink before parting, he remained behind at the 300th meter along with Andre. There wasn't much further to go. From a distance, the lively noise of the station could already be heard. Poitre Androvich walked alongside Artyom, asking him, worriedly, Listen, Artyom, who was that, anyway? What was he saying to you back there? He was a strange sort of guy. He was asking about Uncle Sasha, an acquaintance of his, I guess. Do you know him? Don't seem to. He just come to our station for a couple of days on some sort of business, it seems. Looks like Andre has already met him. He was the one who insisted on being on the same watch with him. Who the hell knows why he found that so necessary? His face was somehow familiar. Yeah, it was probably hard to forget an appearance like that, said Artyom. Exactly. Where was it that I saw him? What? What's his name? Do you know? Acquired portrait, portree, portree, On the Androvich, Hunter. That was it. That's what he said. Hunter. Just try and figure out what that's supposed to be. Hunter. Not a Russian name. Brown portrait, portree, Androvich. In the distance, a red glow had already appeared. BDNKH, like the majority of stations, didn't have normal lighting. And, for 30 years now, people have lived under scarlet emergency lights. Only occasionally were there normal electric light bulbs in their apartments. Their tents and rooms. And... Only a few of the wealthiest metro stations were illuminated by the light of genuine mercury lamps. Legends had formed around them in provincial types. From distant, god-forsaken substance, substations would nourish the dream for years on end of making it there and beholding this miracle. At the tunnel exit, they handed over their weapons to the other guards and signed their names in the ledger. Portray Androvich shook Artyom's hand before parting and said, It's about time we hit the sack. I can barely stand on my feet, and you are probably ready to sleep, standing up yourself. Give Sukhoi my warmest regards. He said, He should pay me a visit. RTM said goodbye, and feeling the sudden onset of fatigue, took himself off to his apartment. 200 people lived at V.D.N.K.H. some in the service quarters, but the majority in tents on the platform. The tents were army-issued, now old, tattered but still intact. They didn't have to connect with no, they didn't have to contend with wind or rain underground and they were well-maintained so it was easily possible to live in them. They didn't lose heat or light and they even kept out out the noise. What more could one ask of one's housing? The tents were tucked up against the wall on on either side, both along the tracks and in the central hall. The platform had been turned into something resembling a street. There was a fairly wide passage along its middle. Some of the tents were large, housing the more numerous families and they occupied the space beneath the archways. The several arches remained free for passage. At each end of the hall and at its center there were other accommodations below the platform as well but the ceilings there wasn't very high and they weren't very suitable for habitation. They used them at BDNKH for the storage of provisions. The two northern tunnels were joined by a side tunnel several tens of meters beyond the station, which, which one, once upon a time allowed trains to turn around and head back in the other direction. Now one of these tunnels were plugged in, the other led to the north towards the Botanical Garden and almost to Matisse. Matishi or Matiski. They left it as a retreat route in case of extreme circumstances, and it was there that Ardiem had been on the watch. The remaining segment of the second tunnel and the un and uh, the unified stretch between the two tunnels was designated for mushroom plantations. The rails there had been dismantled and the ground had been tilled and fertilized. They hauled waste products there from the cesspit. Tidy rows of mushroom caps shone white along the tunnel. One of the two southern tunnels had been collapsed as well as the 300th meter, no, at the 300th meter. And they used that area for chicken coops and pens. Artyom's home stood on the main uh, thoroughfare. He lived there in one of the smaller tents together with his stepfather. His stepfather was an important man associated with the administration. He maintained contact with other stations, so the power that being reserved the tent for him. It was granted to him as his own personal tent, and it was a first-rate one at that. His stepfather would frequently disappear for two or three weeks at a time and never took Artyom with him, excusing himself by saying that he was occupied with matters too dangerous and didn't want to subject Artyom to any risk. He'd return from his trips thinner and his hair unkempt, sometimes wounded, but the first evening of his return he would always sit with Ardium telling him things that were hard to believe even for a resident of the grotesque little world, and one who was used to unbelievable stories. Ardium felt the urge to travel himself. But to wander around in the metro for no good reason was too dangerous. The patrol guards at independent stations were very suspicious and wouldn't let a person pass without a weapon. And heading off into the tunnels without a weapon meant certain death. And so, even since he and his grandfather had come from Sevillovskaya, Artyom, hadn't had a chance to take part in any de- decent excursions, he, he'd he sometimes be sent to Alexevskaya on business but he didn't go alone. of course, they went in they went in group, sometimes as far as Rizskaya, but on top of that he had one more trip under his belt about which he couldn't tell anyone although he desperately wanted to. It happened a long time ago when uh, there wasn't even the slightest hint of the Dark Ones at the Botanical Garden when it was simply an abandoned and dark station and patrols from VDNKH were stationed much further to the north. At the time Artyom himself was still just a kid. Back then, he and his buddies decided to take a risk. During a shift change, they stole past the outer cordon cordon of the flashlights and a double barreled rifle stolen from someone's parents and crawled for a long time around the botanical garden station. It was eerie, but it was interesting. In the light of the flashlights, you could see the remnants of human habitation everywhere. Ash uh, signed books I was singing books, broken toys, torn clothing, rats darted about, and from time to time strange tumbling sounds would ring out from the northern tunnel. One of Artyom's friends, he didn't even remember who it was, but it was probably Zinya, the most lively and most curious of the three, said, What if we try to take down the barrier and go up to the surface of... Uh, uh, the surface. Go up to the surface. Up the escalator? Just to see what, it, what it's like there see what's there. Artyom had said right away that he was against it. The recent tales his stepfather told him about people who had spent time on the surface were fresh in his mind, about how afterwards they had long been sick, and about the sort of horrors sometimes seen up there. But they immediately began to argue that this was a rare opportunity. When else when else would they manage to make it with no adults to an abandoned station as they had now. And now they had the chance to go up to the surface too and see see with their own eyes what it's like to have nothing above your head. And. Resigning all hope of convincing him nicely, they declared that if he was such a coward, then he could sit down below and wait for them to come back. The thought of staying alone in an abandoned station, and on top of that, besmirching his his reputation in the eyes of his two best friends, was completely unbearable to Artyom. So, summoning his courage, he consented. To everyone's surprise, the the mechanisms that brought the barrier dividing the platform from the escalator into motion actually worked. And it was Artyom himself who managed to start it up after half an hour of desperate attempts. The rusty iron wall moved slowly with a nasty Grating sound, and before their eyes stood the short row of steps at uh, stood the short row of steps <coughs> of the escalator leading upward. Some of the steps had collapsed, and through the yawning gaps in the light of the flashlights, one could see colossal gears in that had stopped years ago, corroded with rust, groaning over over with something brownish that was moving just barely noticeably. It wasn't easy for them to force themselves to go up there. Several times the steps they stepped on gave way with a screech and dropped below and they climbed across the chasm clinging to the old holes of the Metro lamps. The path to the surface wasn't long, but their initial determination was evaporating after the first collapsed step, and in order to raise their spirits, they imagined themselves to be real stalkers. Stalkers the word strange and foreign to the Russian language had caught on very well nonetheless. Earlier, in, earlier this was the name given to people whose poverty compelled them to make their own way to abandoned military firing ranges, taking apart apart unexploded missiles and bombs and redeem brass casings Oh with those who bought non-ferrous metals. It was also given to those strange people who in times of peace climbed around in the sewers. But all of these meanings had something in common. It was always an extremely dangerous profession. Always a confrontation with the unknown and mysterious and um, ominous. Who knows what happened to those abandoned ranges where the radioactive earth disfigured for thousands of of explosions, plugged with trenches, and pitted with catacombs, put forth monstrous sprouts. And one could only guess what might dwell in the sewers of a teeming metropolis once the builders had closed the hatches behind them, leaving those gloomy, narrow, reeking corridors forever. In the metro, the rare del- daredevils who had the guts to venture to the surface were called stalkers and protective, su- no, in protective suits and gas masks with Tinted glass. They were heavily armed as they ascended to the surface in search of items that were necessities for everyone, military supplies, equipment, replacement parts, fuel. There were hundreds of men who dared to do this. Those who were able to make it back alive could be counted on one's fingers. And these men were worth their weight in gold they were valued even more highly than former metro employees all kinds of dangers awaited those who dared to go up above from the radiation to the ghoulish creatures it had created there was life there too on the surface but it was no longer life according to the customary human conceptions of it Every stalker became a living legend, a demigod, whom everyone, young and old, regarded with rapt amazement. In a world in which there was nowhere left to sail or fly in the words, and the words pilot and sailor were becoming dull and losing their meaning, children dreamed of becoming stalkers to stride out, Clothing in, no, clothed in shining armor, accompanied by hundreds of gazes in adoration and gratitude, climbing to the surface, to the realm of the gods, to do battle with monsters and returning underground, to bring the people fuel, military supplies, light and fire, to bring life. Artium his... His friend Zanya and Fetelik, the splinter, all wanted to become stalkers, and compelling themselves to climb upward along the horrifying screeching escalator when, with its collapsing steps, they imagined themselves in protective suits with radiation damage monitors and hawking machine guns at the ready just as one would expect of real stalkers, But they had neither radiation monitors nor protection, and instead of imposing army-issued machine guns, they had only the ancient double-barreled rifle, which perhaps didn't even shoot at all. Before long, their ascent was complete and they found themselves almost on the surface. Fortunately, it was night, otherwise they would have been blinded. Eyes accustomed to darkness and to the crimson light of bonfires and emergency la- lamps in their many years of life underground wouldn't have withstood the glare. Blinded and helpless, they would have been unlikely to make it back home again. And vestibule of the Botanical Garden Station was almost destroyed. No, the vestibule of the Botanical Garden Station was almost destroyed. Half of the roof had collapsed. And though it one, it one could see, and through it one could see, The radioactive dust of the dark blue summer sky already cleansed of clouds and strewn with myriad myriad stars, but what was a starry sky for a child who wasn't even capable of imagining that a ceiling might not be above his head? When you lift your gaze and it doesn't run up against concrete covering the rotten, networks of wires and pipes, but is lost instead to a dark blue abyss gaping suddenly above your head. What an impression. In the stars, could anyone who had never seen stars possibly imagine what infinity is, when, most likely, the very concept of infinity first appeared among humans inspired once upon a time by the nocturnal vaults of the heavens. Millions of shining lights, silver nails driven into the dome of dark blue velvet. The boys stood for three, five, then ten minutes, unable to utter a word. They wouldn't even have moved and by morning would certainly have been cooked alive if they hadn't heard a blood-curdling howl spring out nearby. Coming to their senses, they rushed headlong back to the escalator and raced down it as fast as their legs could carry them. Having thrown all caution to the wind and several times nearly plunging downward into the teeth of the gears supporting each other and pulling each other out, they made their journey back to in a matter of seconds. Spinning down the final ten steps like a top, having lost the double-barreled rifle along the way, they immediately lunged for the control panel of the barrier, but damn it, the rusted old iron had become wedged and it didn't want to return to its place. Scared half to death that the monsters would pursue them from the surface, they raced off homeward to the northern cordon cordon. But remembering that they'd probably done something very bad, having left the hermetic gates open, and had possibly left the path downward into the metro, into the people open for the mutants, they found the time to agree to keep their lips sealed, and not to tell any of the adults where they'd been. At the cordon they said that they'd gone to a side tunnel to hunt for rats, but had lost their gun, becoming frightened in return. Artyom, of course, caught hell from his father. His rear end smarted for a long time from that officer's belt. But Artyom held up like a captive partisan and didn't blurt out his military secrets. His comrades kept silent as well. Everyone believed him, but now, when he thought of his escapade, Artyom fell more and more often into reflection. Was this journey? And more important, the barrier they'd opened connected somehow to the scum that had been assaulting their cordons for the last several years. Greeting passers by, stopping now and now and then to hear some news, to shake hands with a friend, to land a kiss on the cheek of a familiar girl, to tell the old older generations about his stepfather's dealings. RDM finally reached his home. Nobody was there, and he decided not to wait for his stepfather, but to go to bed. An eight-hour watch was enough to take anyone off their feet. He threw off his boots, took off his jacket, and planted his face in the pillow. Sleep didn't make him wait. Sleep didn't make him wait. The flaps of the tents were lifted and the massive figure slipped quietly inside, whose face couldn't be seen. The only thing visible was the ominous gleam of a smooth skull reflecting the red emergency lights. A muffled voice was heard. We meet again. Your stepfather, I see, is not here. Doesn't matter. We'll find him. Sooner or later, he won't get away. For now, you'll come with me. We have something to talk about. For example, the barrier at the botanical garden. R.D.M. froze. recognized the guy he had met in the cordon earlier. The man who had introduced himself as Hunter. The man came closer slowly, silently, and his face was still not visible. For some reason, the light was falling in a strange way. Artyom wanted to call for help, but a powerful hand, as cold as death, clamped onto his mouth. At last, he managed to grab hold of a lantern, turn it on, and light up the person's face. What he saw rendered him powerless for a moment and filled him with horror. What loomed in front of him was not a human face, but a terrible black muzzle with two huge vacant and whiteless eyes and gaping maw. Artyom darted and threw himself out of the tent. The light suddenly went out and the station became totally dark. There was only some weak-reflected light from a small fire somewhere in the distance. Without pausing for thought, Artyom rushed in that direction towards the light. The ghoul jumped towards him and from behind, growling, Stop! You have nowhere to run! He roared with terrifying laughter, which slowly became a familiar graveyard howl. Artyom ran off without turning to look, hearing the footfalls of heavy boots behind him, unhurried, even as if his pursuer knew that there was nowhere to run, that Artyom would be caught sooner or later. Artyom ran up to the fire and saw a figure sitting there with its back to him. He was going to tap the sitting person on the shoulder and asked for help but the person suddenly fell backwards as it was clear that he had been dead a long time his face was covered with a hoarfrost for some reason and in the face of this frozen person Artyom recognized uncle, Uncle Sasha his stepfather Artyom, that was a good sleep. Now get up. You've been snoozing for seven hours in a row already. Get up, sleepyhead. We have guests coming. Suko's voice rang out. Artyom sat up in bed and stared at him, stunned. Oh, Uncle Sosh, you. Is everything okay with you? He asked at last after a minute of blinking. It was hard for him to overcome the urge to ask him if he was alive or not. And that was only because the fact of it was standing. And that was also only because the fact of it was standing in front of him. Yes, as you can see. Come on, come on, get up. No point lying about. I want to introduce you to my friend, said Sukai. There was a familiar but muffled voice nearby, and Artyom was covered in perspiration, remembering his recent nightmare. So you've met already, Sukai was surprised. Well, Artyom, you're sharp. Finally, the visitor squeezed into the tent. Artyom shuddered and pressed against the tent wall. It was Hunter. The nightmare came alive again dark vacant eyes, the roar of heavy boots behind him, the stiff corpse sitting at the fire. Yes, we met Artyom managed to squeeze out his his reply and reluctantly extended a hand to the visitor. Hunter's hand was hot and dry and Artyom slowly started to convince himself that it was just a dream. That there was nothing sinister about this person. That it was just his imagination ignited with fear after eight hours at the cordon and playing out in his dreams. After eight hours at the cordon playing out in his dreams. Listen, Artyom, do us a favor. Boil some water for tea. Have you tried our tea? Sukai winked visitor. A poisonous potion. I know it, Hunter responded, nodding. Good tea. They make it at Pichupniki to Pigswill. will, but here it is a different matter. Artyom went to get the water, then to the communal fire to boil the kettle. It was strictly forbidden to make fires inside tents. A couple of stations had burnt down due due to tent fires before now.